Spectrum's next. Welcome to Spectrum, the science and technology show on KALX Berkeley, a bi-weekly 30-minute program bringing you interviews featuring Bay Area scientists and technologists, as well as a calendar of local events and news. My name is Brad Swift. I am the host of Spectrum Today. We are presenting part two of our two-part interview with Michael Eisen, an associate professor of genetics, genomics, and development in UC Berkeley's Department of Molecular Biology. In part one, Michael talked about his research of gene regulation. This week, Michael explains the Public Library of Science, his feelings on labeling of GMOs and food, as well as intellectual property, science outreach, and science funding. Enjoy the interview. I wanted to talk about the uh, Public Library of Science that Uh you were a co-founder of. Yeah. And are you still involved with that? Yeah, I'm on the board. I'm still very actively involved in trying to shape its future and in general in the future of science publishing. And so can you talk about its business model and how it's changing publishing? Sure. The basic idea is that science publishing has been around for as long as science has been an endeavor. You know, From the 17th century, Francis Bacon, Isaac Newton, all these guys were sort of inventing science as we currently know it and science as an enterprise – obviously requires that scientists communicate with each other. And since time immemorial in in science, we've had journals. Francis Bacon, other scientists in the 17th century, started at proceedings of the Royal Society, right? And for 330 years or so after they started these journals, they were using the only technology available to them at the time, which was print publishing. And, And a lot of things that follow from the way scientific publishing was structured follow intrinsically from the limitations and features of that printed journal. And as an economic model, the only model that makes sense is for the end users to pay for the for a subscription. And, you know, there's problems with that. Only people who can afford the subscriptions can get access to the scientific literature and so forth. They follow from an intrinsic limitation of a medium. Now, in the 90s, 1990s, that all changed, right? The internet came along, and science was amongst the first groups of people to embrace the internet. And by the sort of mid to late 1990s, basically every scientific journal that existed was online and publishing an electronic edition and increasingly going into their archives and digitizing their their archives and so forth. So that by 2000, you now could have had access to a large fraction of the entire published record of science. It's such an amazing thing to be able to do that. But insanely, the business model behind scientific publishing didn't change at all. So publishers who had all these subscriptions now were no longer selling print journals or decreasingly selling print journals. They were just selling access to published material in a database. And yet they did no innovation in the business model at all. They just simply charged people for accessing their database just like they'd been charging people to mail them copies. There was no longer any technical or economic reason why the whole universe couldn't have had immediate free access to the published scientific literature. The only reason that, you know, you or anybody else in the world didn't have immediate access to anything published in medicine or science or whatever was that the publishers didn't let them. 
So PLOS and the, the whole industry of open access publishing around it, the basic idea is publishers do and provide an important service and they should be paid for the service they provide, but that as soon as they're done, as soon as the publisher's hands are off the paper, it's freely available to everybody, not just to read, but to use and do with whatever, to basically place the scientific literature into the public domain where it belongs. Science is a public venture, not exclusively, but for the most part funded by either the federal government, state governments, or by public-minded foundations. And the idea that the end product of that investment is the property of publishers is insane, and it's a huge impediment to the way science works and to the ability of the public to benefit from scientific information. And so PLOS has been trying to pull the rug out from underneath this subscription-based business model by creating journals that use this alternative business model that are now quite successful. PLOS has a journal, PLOS One, which is now the biggest biomedical research journal on the planet. Still only publishes a couple percent of the total because there's a ton of journals out there. But it's big, it's successful, it's growing. Lots of other publishers are starting to switch, not just because of it's a successful business, but because of the pressure from the public, pressure from the government. The NIH now requires that people make papers that are funded by NIH research freely available within a year after a publication. Things are moving in the right direction. And I think the insanity of a world in which the output of publicly funded, publicly minded science is privately owned by people who had nothing to do with the generation of the science in the first place. is It's not quite over, but it is the writings on the wall. That it, it's and there was a bit of pushback on that in the in the Congress. What's sure. the state of that? Is that so resolved? So there's a lot of pushback because the publishers, it's an incredibly lucrative business. The profit margins for Elsevier and other big commercial publishers exceed those of Apple and other sort of paragons of highly profitable businesses. When you have a company that's making a billion dollars profit off of the public back and they see a simple legislative solution to avoiding their problem, I think it's a natural instinct on their part to just try to write a law. And, you know, basically what happened was someone from their district who has a company in their district who gives them lots of money writes a bill gives it to them and says, hey, could you introduce this? We have a huge problem. These you know, radical crazies from Berkeley are trying to undermine our entire business model and lose jobs, blah, blah, blah. They get this bill introduced. And there's non-trivial risk that this kind of things would pass because they've managed to align themselves with a stronger force in Congress, the pro-copyright lobby. They've managed to basically convince them that this issue with scientific publishing is scientists want to steal publishers' content just like College kids want to steal music from you know musicians, and and so there was a non-trivial risk that this was going to pass. And it's the second time it's been introduced. So fortunately, it's very easy to say, look, the taxpayers paid for this stuff. Do you really think it's right for you know somebody who just got diagnosed with some horrible disease to not have access to information that they paid for? The publishers lose this every time. This becomes a public fight, and they're not on a winning path. And so. I expect it to happen again, but just like this last time, I don't think they're going to win. More people in Congress are on our side and paying attention than there are on Elsevier's side. Mm-hmm. Are those publishers mostly private or are they publicly? I mean, they're corporations? They're or... I mean, yeah, they're, they're pu- mostly public corporations. Mm-hmm. So Elsevier is a big publicly traded corporation, but they're mostly from the Netherlands and London. There's a bunch of big companies. But interestingly, uh, we've had as much problem historically with nonprofit scientific societies. The societies themselves make a lot of money on their journals. A lot of them do. And it's put them in a kind of compromised position where their revenues from their journals are so important to their overall financial stability that they behave like commercial publishers. It's not just big companies. It's any established publisher who makes a lot of money on publishing 
is sort of intrinsically compromised, I think, in this endeavor. So the next sort of thing Bloss is trying to do is to switch to a world in which publishing becomes almost instantaneous. Still takes nine months or so on average for most works to go from when an author is ready to share it with the public to when it's actually publicly available, even if the journal is freely accessible. And so there's still a lot wrong with the way scientists communicate with each other and with the public that this is not a close-up shop once we win this open access battle. It's just mm-hmm. the beginning. And this doesn't really conflict with intellectual property rights and things like that. The idea of open science is really just sharing the information. The intellectual property is independent of how openly accessible the publication is. On the other hand, I also think that the intellectual property stuff is bad. I've always believed that if you're getting money from the federal government, that the intellectual property you develop should not belong to you. It should be in the public domain. And I think that there's a lot of corruption of the way people behave in science that stems from the personal pressure as well as the pressure from the institutions to turn every idea, every little thing they generate in the lab into a commodity. And I think it makes science work poorly that this is happening. And so it doesn't benefit society to have academic, publicly funded research turn into privately held intellectual property. It inhibits the commercialization of those ideas. It inhibits the broader use of ideas. Plenty of studies have shown that this generally costs more money to manage this whole intellectual property thing than the system benefits at the end of the day. Very few universities profit from their intellectual property efforts. Mostly they spend a lot of money on lawyers and systems and they don't have the you know cloning patent or whatever it is. But if your interest is in the broader functioning of science and in the broader exposure to the public, to the benefits of scientific research, you have to think that this stuff should just go right into the public domain. Where people want to commercialize it, they can. They just don't own any exclusive right to use it. And I think making it all pre-competitive is by far the best thing to do. So while publishing itself, to answer the question directly, is not a threat to intellectual property, if I could figure out a way to make it so, I would do so. Because I think it's a very, very bad thing that publicly funded scientists, people at the University of California, that their stuff doesn't just belong to the public. This is Spectrum on KALX Berkeley. Today, Michael Eisen, associate professor at UC Berkeley, reflects on the Prop 37 campaign and GMO labeling on food. Another issue that involves the public a lot is the interest in GMOs in food. How would you like to see that debate transformed, having just been through the the election cycle here in California where we had that proposition? Right. As you know, I was very, very much opposed to Prop 37. And I think mostly because the campaign against genetically modified organisms was predicated on an ignorance of how the technology works. And I felt a fear sort of of science, that the problem for most people was that science was involved in food. And there's so many problems with that point of view that it's hard to know where to start. First of all, the reasons why I was particularly opposed to this initiative was that the backers were willfully distorting the science, spreading the idea that GMOs were intrinsically dangerous, basically that the public would benefit from having the wrong knowledge about GMOs, which is what I really felt like they were pushing. So most scientists look at this and think what GMOs are doing is no different than what we've done for thousands of years in selective breeding of crops. The idea that the food we eat is in some natural state is a fallacy. Compare corn to its ancestor, Tiacinte. You compare the tomato you buy in the supermarket to the wild Salanum linsipersicum. None of these things we eat look anything remotely like what you found in the wild. 
They were transformed by centuries of selective breeding and crossing and all sorts of other genetic techniques. Those are the tools of genetics that genetics has just gotten better and we can do these things in a different way. And yes, genetic modification is not identical, but there's nothing intrinsically weird or intrinsically dangerous about moving genes from one species to another, putting synthetic genes into a plant. It could be. It's not intrinsically safe either, but the attitude that people seem to take is one of the food we have now is in a natural, untainted state, and that the second scientists put their hands on it, all of a sudden it becomes a dangerous threat. But I also think the industry has been stupid in my mind and has caused a lot of this problem by basically being secret about it. For me, it was sort of a lose-lose situation in that neither side of that fight was actually interested in the public understanding the science. So you had a ballot measure, from my mind, in which more or less everybody involved was trying to promote public ignorance about an issue. And it's a struggle. I don't know what the right exact solution is to achieve what I think we really need to do, which is to have the public have a, an understanding of the technology, not a detailed understanding about what enzymes are used to move plants, you know, why it exists, how it exists, how it works, what people are doing, why it will benefit them or why it could benefit them in the long run. And so that they understand it and can weigh the benefits and costs in a rational way, not an irrational way. I would love to see the food producers label their food not with a huge thing on the front that says caution and contains genetically modified ingredients, but with a label on back that says here's where the seeds, the crops that went into this food come from. Maybe there's not enough room on the label of every plant to give a comprehensive thing, but you know everybody's got a cell phone and a QR reader now. It's not impossible to imagine that every food had a little QR code on the back that you could scan and would say, here are the varieties that were used in the food. Some of them are genetically modified, and here's why they were genetically modified, and here's what benefit accrues from that genetic modification. Here's why you shouldn't be worried about it. I just think somehow we need to get the public more engaged in the an understanding of where food comes from, how it's grown, and what the rationale behind this process is so that they're rational actors in the process. I mean, that's all I mean, most scientists really want out of this. It's not so much to dictate that the public make particular decisions about science, although we all have our own biases about these things, but that the lack of understanding of the public about these issues and even very simple things like the simple fact that the food we eat has been subjected to genetics and that better education about simple scientific things like that would make these debates focus on things that actually should be in the public debate. Like, are the companies that are using genetically modified crops exploiting intellectual property in ways that's bad for the public? It certainly seems like in many cases they do. Should we be developing genetically modified crops who basically result in increased herbicide use? Those are issues that are worth discussing, but they have to be discussed in the context where people understand what you're talking about. And they don't think, oh, my God, there's an insecticide in my corn. I'm, everybody's going to die. And, and so if I had an easy solution to that problem, I would implement it. But I can recognize when something is not going to achieve it. And I think scaring everybody into thinking that genetic modification is a horrible, dangerous technology that needs to be regulated by the government in some kind of special way was not going to achieve that. Isn't that sort of a difficulty with science in general that oftentimes it gets out in front of the population yeah. and presents it with quandaries that it can't grasp and it boils down to fear? Yeah, I think this is true. This is a lot of this happening with human genetics and things like that. There's plenty of examples of where the way people are used to thinking about things is threatened in some ways or, or challenged by new science. And I think it's a constant challenge to the scientific community to try to make sure that it doesn't 
not so much to make sure that it doesn't get ahead of the public. That's fine. That's what we're paid to do, right? But that in doing so, we grapple with the challenge of educating the public about what we're doing and why and how it's going to benefit them. And it's never going to be completely successful. But I do think that the scientific community is as much to blame as anybody for not having engaged in these issues repeatedly and not having spent its capital to some extent earning the trust of the public and things like this. You see it with human genetics and probably more acutely than anything with global warming, where at some deep level, the problem is with an insufficient number of people in the public trust scientists to convey what's important about their understanding of the, the universe and say they trust them when you do surveys. But it's clear that that trust can be easily undermined with the right kind of PR, right? It was easy to undermine it from the yes on 37 crowd, it was easy to undermine scientists as all being self-interested, somehow all we're all involved in making GMOs and therefore we're just shills for Monsanto at some deep level, even though it's absurd. And it's easy from the right to say, well, scientists, you know, they're a bunch of crazy lefties who just want us all to be environmentalists and don't have anything to care about business. So the public supports science, but it's a thin support. And it's a thin support because the scientific community hasn't really engaged the public in trying to understand what we're doing. And, you know, sure, there's plenty of good scientists who are trying to do that, but it certainly have to look at it as a general failure, you know, in terms of scientific literacy in this country. And it bites us all the time in small ways like Prop 37 and in big ways like global warming. Spectrum is on KALX Berkeley alternating Fridays. Michael Eisen is our guest, and in this next section, Michael talks about science's failure in public outreach and new trends in science funding. Scientific outreach is a difficult endeavor for a lot of scientists. It doesn't really have a lot of cachet or status within the community, and it's tough to fund. Yeah, all that's true. I think it's not without its rewards. It's fun. I mean, I, I like talking to the public about science, not because I get anything particular from it, but just because I like what I do. I like talking about what excites me about the world. I mean, it's fun. A lot of scientists don't feel that way. They don't, you know, they're, they'd rather be in the lab than talking in, in public. But it's like a lot of things. I think that partly it's just our expectation. We don't expect as a university, as a federal government funding science. It's not considered to be part of what we expect people to do to try to get engaged in communicating the science. It's sort of viewed that there's a another layer of people who are going to be involved in communicating science, who are going to know how to talk to the scientists and know how to talk to the public. And there certainly are fantastic people who do that. But I think ultimately it has to come back to scientists recognizing that it's, it's important. Like if we can't convince the public that what we're doing is important... They're not going to keep giving us money to do it. And so it's a threat to science in every way, not just in its application, but in its practical day-to-day -day existence that the public doesn't when they don't understand us. The scientific community should expect the people who are doing research, who are benefiting from the system, to do a better job and to take seriously the challenge of communicating it to the public. That's not to say, I mean, lots of people do it. It's just because it's not organized, because it's not expected of people because there's no systematic method for doing it, it piecemeal and, and is not as effective, I think, as it could be if this were a big part of what scientists did. And just to tie all these things together, I'll point out that one of the things I would hope in the long run would happen as a consequence of the public having access to the scientific literature is that people would start writing papers with the public at least partially in mind when they wrote them. The stuff we do isn't that complicated. I can explain what I do 
I could write papers that explain sort of what I'm doing and why, and it would be a huge benefit. One of the things we really, really fail to do is we're good at explaining facts. Here's what we know. Here's what we've learned. Here's the truth of the system. We're really bad at explaining the scientific method to people. And I think people don't know why we know things we know, why we believe them. And I think if we were better at writing our papers, I don't expect tons of people to break down the doors and read my papers. But you know, I think they're interesting and well-written. And, and certainly there are papers that PLOS publishes that get a lot of public attention, anything involving dinosaurs or anything involving weird sexual practices of animals. right? So when those things are good, really good, strong science – People are looking and paying attention. And if the papers were written in a way that actually engaged the public and thought, well, I'm going to try to explain what I did here to the public, that this would probably be the most effective thing we could do, would be to educate the public, educate our students, educate everybody about what scientists do and how we do it, not just what we discovered, which is, I think, one of the major problems is focus on facts and discoveries. It's a problem in our public communication. It's a problem in education. It's a problem just in general for science that we don't talk very much about how we know things, what we're doing, and why. We just talk about what we've learned. Is there anything that I haven't asked you about that you want to hold forth on? Um, you were asking some questions about science funding and about the amount of money available for science is getting tighter and tighter. It's more and more scientists. And I think we're facing a kind of big question about, like, what does the public want to fund in science? Part of the downside of this big data move in science has been a sort of loss of appreciation for the importance of individual scientists. And I think that there's all this big science, and it's true in biology. People think, well, let's just get 100 scientists from across the country, and we'll all get together, and we'll do the most important experiments to do. And there's an increasing tendency for this sort of science by committee kind of way of doing things. And sometimes that worked. It worked for the Human Genome Project and so forth. But probably one of the things I worry about most in science is that, that we're moving away from a world in which individual scientists get to pursue their own ideas, and you know, which is ultimately where the most interesting stuff usually comes from. It's, you know, genome projects don't win Nobel Prizes because they're infrastructure. They're not ultimately about discoveries. And so I do worry that seduction of big science is such that funding agencies and other people think that this is a great way for them to control what happens. They're going to put tons of money into these big projects and get everybody to sign on to whatever agenda is coming from the NIH rather than from individual scientists. And I think it's a struggle we're about to see reach a real head in science as less and less money is available. It's harder and harder to get individual research grants. And I think we're starting to see pushback against that in the scientific community, but I don't know who will prevail. I would not like being a scientist if what I did with my days was go to committee meetings with 30 other scientists where we discussed what one experiment we were going to do, which is pieces where things are headed, at least at the, at the moment. But. Michael Eisen, thanks very much for coming on Spectrum. Absolute pleasure. Now our calendar of science and technology events happening locally over the next two weeks. Rick Karneski and Renee Rao present the calendar. Charles Darwin may have been born on February 12th, but the Fellowship of Humanity is celebrating his birthday with Darwin Day on Sunday, February 24th at 1.30 p.m. David Seaborg of the World Rainforest Fund and a leading expert on evolutionary theory presents the keynote, Evolution Today current state of knowledge, and controversies. Nobel Prize physicist George Schmutt 
and leading expert on Darwin, Peter Hess, of the National Center for Science Education, will also talk. Afterwards, enjoy a potluck dinner party with the speakers. I anticipate primordial soup. The event is at Humanist Hall, 39027th Street in Oakland. Visit humanisthall.net for more info. Every month, Nerd Night holds an event that can only be described as a gratifying mixture of the Discovery Channel and beer. This Monday, East Bay's own February Nerd Night will be held at the New Parkway Theater. Jessica Richmond will speak about the plethora of microbial cells we play host to within our bodies and what they do there. She will explore the latest research on how our microbes correlate with obesity, anxiety, heart disease, and tooth decay. Will Fisher will discuss the history, physics, and some modern advances of the processes of creating machines. Finally, Guy Pyrzak will speak about his experience as a science planner for the Curiosity Rover. Nerd Night will begin at 7 p.m. on February 25th at the New Parkway Theater in Oakland. The $8 tickets can be purchased online at East Bay Nerd Night, spelled N-I-T-E, dot com. This February 26th, the Life Sciences Divisions at the Lawrence Lab in Berkeley will hold a seminar on the subject of life and death at the cellular level. Denise Montel, a professor of molecular and developmental biology at UC Santa Barbara, will discuss her research in the area. Her lab has recently discovered a surprising reversibility of the cell suicide process known as apoptosis. She is now testing the hypothesis that the ability of cells to return from the brink of death serves to salvage cells that are difficult to replace, such as heart muscles or neurons in the adult brain. The seminar is open to the public, although non-UC Berkeley students are asked to RSVP by phone or through the lab website. The event will be held in room 141 of the Lawrence Berkeley Lab building at 717 Potter Street in West Berkeley. It will begin at 4 p.m. on February 26th. This Wednesday at the Herbst Theater in San Francisco, you can learn more about your nightly slumbers. Professor Matt Walker in the Sleep and Neuroimaging Laboratory at UC Berkeley has found compelling evidence that our light, dreamless stage of sleep can solidify short-term memories by rewiring the architecture of the brain. Bursts of electrical impulses, known as sleep spindles, may be networking between the brain's hippocampus and the prefrontal cortex's storage area. His team has also found evidence that sleep can associate and integrate new memories together. Dr. Walker will be in conversation with KALW reporter Amy Standen. Tickets for the February 27th event can be found online at calacademy.org. Berkeley professor Alex Filipinko is speaking at the Commonwealth Club about dark energy and the runaway universe. We expected that the attractive force of gravity would slow down the rate at which the universe is expanding, but observations of very distant exploding stars, known as supernova, show that the expansion rate is actually speeding up. The universe seems to be dominated by a repulsive dark energy, an idea Albert Einstein had suggested in 1917, but renounced in 1929 as his biggest blunder. The physical origin and nature of dark energy is probably the most important unsolved problem in all of physics. This event will be Thursday, February 28th. At 5.30, there will be a networking reception, followed by the program at 6. The cost is $20, $8 for Commonwealth members, or $7 for students with valid ID. Visit commonwealthclub.org for more info. Now, two news stories presented by Renee and Rick. 
A UC Berkeley student team has made it into the final rounds of the Disney-sponsored design competition known as Imaginations. The competition challenges students to design a Disney experience for the residents of their chosen city. The student team, Tiffany Yuan, Catherine Moore, and Andrew Lin, designed a green robot food truck called Sammy. The students drew on Berkeley's reputation as an environmentally friendly city to create Sammy, who comes equipped with solar panels and a self-cultivating garden. Disney has praised the project's collaborative nature, which incorporates design aspects from each student's major. The students are now presenting their project at Disney headquarters, along with five other teams from across the country. Last Friday, February sixteenth, you may have seen a large fireball in the night sky over the Bay Area. Jonathan Braidman of the Chabot Space and Science Center in Oakland told the Washington Post that meteors that streak through the sky are a very common occurrence. What is uncommon is that it's so close to where people are living. Braidman also noted that fifteen thousand tons of debris from asteroids enter the Earth's atmosphere every year. Usually, these things break up into small pieces and are difficult to find. This event was hours after the 200-foot asteroid named 2012 DA14 came within 18,000 miles of Earth, and after the Valentine's Day meteor exploded over Russia, injuring more than a thousand people. That meteor was the largest to hit the Earth in more than a century, streaking through the atmosphere at supersonic speeds. It created a loud shock wave that broke glass. Scientists estimate that it was about 15 meters across and 7,000 metric tons. Despite this massive size, it was undetected until it hit the atmosphere. The music heard during the show is by Lostana David from his album Folk and Acoustic, released under a Creative Commons license 3.0 attribution. Thank you for listening to Spectrum. If you have comments about the show, please send them to us via email. Our email address is spectrum.kalx at yahoo.com. Join us in two weeks at this same time.